You know, I think you probably agree with this, that we love power, strength. We kind of get obsessed with it. I remember when I was a kid, this had to be around uh, 1980 or so. This was at, you know, during the Cold War. I don't know why this memory sticks out, but we, uh, we got the Aniston Star newspaper. And uh, I think I usually just went to the sports section. But I think it must have been on the front of the Ensign Star. They had a comparison between the military of the United States and the military of the U- USSR, Soviet Union. And again, around 1980. And I remember getting pretty stressed. This was back, you know, some of you remember this and some of you are too young or whatever, but... This was back in, in the days when, you know, they would talk to us at school about this is, this is what we're going to do if there's a nuclear attack, you know, that, that, sort, of, that sort of stuff uh, back then during the Cold War. On the front of the newspaper, though, it had the comparison between our military and the USSR, and it, and it, and it had it represented, like, the number of tanks, like, it, it would had, had these images, uh, a tank represented, I don't know, uh, represented a thousand tanks or whatever, or ten thousand tanks, and it had ours compared to the Soviet Union. Um, nuclear weapons, you know, it have a, a a picture of a missile, and that represented so many nuclear weapons or whatever compared to the USSR, and then number of active s- soldiers compared to the USSR, and they outnumbered us by a lot at that moment. At least this is the way I remember it. They had so many more tanks than we had. They had more nuclear weapons than we had. Their army was bigger than our army was. And I remember I was stressed over that. Like, I thought, I thought we're supposed to be stronger. You know, we're supposed to be more powerful. And, and just that, that visual image to my eight- or nine-year-old mind was, was scary. Because strength matters, you know. It matters a lot. You think about the way that we think about strength. I'm not just talking about military strength, obviously. Think about economic strength. We like strength. We like for there to be a strong economy. We like, um, in, in just areas that are closer to home as far as our daily lives, we like to be in a position of power at work. We like for voices to matter. You know, we like for people to listen when we talk. Like, like, like you know, it, it matters. We, we've, got, we've got strength in this relationship. Even something as trivial as sports, you know, I was thinking about our, the universities, many of the universities in our state, you know, the Sanford Bulldogs, the UAB Blazers, the Auburn Tigers, Alabama Crimson Tide, relating to maybe to an elephant in some respect, right? The mascots typically are these animals that represent strength, you know, or the ducks of Oregon. That doesn't make sense, does it? Or the, the horn... The horned frogs. That one, there are a couple of there are a couple of exceptions to that, but it's it's interesting how, generally speaking, that we 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 we've got these images of um, of strength. You know, we like it. Like so many things, God takes these notions that we are very familiar with, and he and he and he oftentimes kind of turns them on their head. The way God views stuff is different from the way the world views it. And this is no exception to that. Let me set the stage for you in Revelation 5. Um, You you probably know something about the book of Revelation. A lot of it's hard to understand. We don't understand some of the symbols and some of the 
some of the specific numbers. Maybe we don't understand exactly what he's talking about, but we can understand a lot. And I think we can understand the point of Revelation 5, and, and we can understand that the church is going through a hard time. I mean, things were, things were rough. This was, I think, near the end of the first century. There were, had been a succession of emperors that had kind of used it as a political thing to persecute Christians. Things were getting pretty bad. They, they, were, they were, you know, burning them at the stake. They were, <clears throat> they were putting them in the, in the theater. Uh, that probably would happen a little bit more later on. But stuff was happening. You know, they were killing Christians. It was getting rough. Book of Revelation arises out of that context where John is wrestling with this as a representative of the people, and God reveals to him these visions, these, these dreams, these, these images that help John to sort through to figure out what God is doing in the world. See, that was the, that was the cry of Christians at this time. What are you doing, God? I mean, we're, we're hurting here. We are struggling. We are weak. We have no power. We have no political voice. We have no social influence, at least from an earthly perspective. We, we can't do anything. We are at the mercy of this most powerful empire, Rome. What are we going to do? And God gives him a book. Chapter 5, verse 1 says, Darren read for us a few minutes ago, said it's written on the front and the back. That was weird. Scrolls were just written on the front, usually. Occasionally, they'd be written on front and back, but that was when you had something incredibly important to say. So when he says in verse 1 that this scroll was written on the front and the back, that means that's a big deal. So they would write on it, typically write on the front of it, and they would roll it up. But this one, they wrote on the front of it, somehow flipped it over, wrote on the back of it, and then they rolled it up. And to add to the weight of the moment, they sealed it. They would do that with important documents. They would, they would, after they rolled it up, they would put these threads around it. And then if it was a really important document, they would take some wax, some hot wax, and they would then put it over the threads themselves. And everybody who had signed the document, the witnesses, would take their signet ring and they would imprint their signet ring in the wax. So when it says in verse 1 that it's written on front and back, and that is sealed with seven seals, that's a Bible way of saying this document is very important. In the context of the book of Revelation, what John is wanting to see here is God's answer to these questions. What are you going to do, God? What are, what's going to happen to the church? What about these people who are dying? What about these people who are being persecuted? We have no power, God. No power at all against Rome. What are you going to do? What's going to happen? The document supposedly has the answers. And so they're looking for someone to open the scroll. Who is, it doesn't, it's interesting how it does not say who is able to. Uh, that, that may be implied a little bit, but in verse 2 it says, who is worthy to open the scroll? Who can do it? Not who has the power. Power matters, but here it's, it's focused more on the integrity, the morality, the worthiness, the character of the one. Who can do this? Who's worthy to open the scroll, to break its seals? And no one, verse 3, no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or look into it. And John is, is overwhelmed with emotion. I began to weep, verse 4. Weep loudly, the ESV puts it. Some translations put it something like, I began to weep and weep. It's an emphatic form. It's an emphatic verb here that's used. And, and, the, and the idea is, Nobody, I mean, you get this image, you've got this incredibly important document written on front and back, sealed, wax over it. 
You got this seven seals, you know, the symbol of strength, of perfection, of completion. This document is important. It is sealed so tightly. They searched everywhere in heaven and earth and under the earth. That's a Bible way of saying they looked everywhere and nobody can do it. And John's response is to cry. <laughs> no answer. We're stuck. No power. No power. Hopelessness. Until. We read this earlier so you know a little bit about where this is going. But then there is an answer. Verse 5. And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold. Behold. Listen to this. This is, this is cool. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, is conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. That image on the screen, the lion, you see that and you think power. I mean, the king of the jungle, right? The lion is this animal, this ferocious animal at the top of the food chain, you know? I mean, you've got this image of strength, of power. And this is a, a reflection on some Old Testament text that you may be familiar with. Um, the line of the tribe of Judah comes from this passage in the book of Genesis, chapter 49, near the end of Jacob's life. Remember, you got Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Jacob had 12 sons. At the end of Jacob's life, shortly before he dies, he calls the 12 sons and he gives them blessings. These blessings turn out to be prophecies. They are prophetic statements from this great patriarch as he speaks to them about the coming future. And, and so he, he goes through all 12 sons, all the sons. But when it comes to Judah, he uses this language, two things are in his prophecy, in his blessing. He says, he uses this language of the lion, and then he says, and the scepter that a king would hold, the scepter will not depart from you. So he uses this image of a lion, which represents in every culture strength, power, and might. And then he uses this image, another image of scepter, which represents reigning or power or king or being a king or having authority. So you combine those. The, the lion of the tribe of Judah, what this is saying here is he is the one, the one who is the fulfillment of this text, of this thing that Jacob said a long time ago, the lion of the tribe of Judah. And then you combine it with the next phrase, the root of David. That's a passage in Isaiah 11 where Isaiah uses this expression, the root of Jesse. He's talking about, about this lineage. Remember who Jesse was? Jesse was the father of David, and David was the great king. You put all this stuff together, here's what I want you to get. The lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, when, when he says this, that is everything that they thought about when they thought about strength and power and might and reigning. Because it's talking about a lion, strong animal, Talking about a scepter, that represents reigning. Talking about the lineage of David, which in, in, in their way of thinking, according to these prophecies, that represents the king. You know, the king's going to come from that lineage. Matthew, open up the gospel. The very, the very first uh, page of your New Testament starts out with Jesus' lineage, right? His genealogy, going back to Abraham, the son of Abraham, the son of David. And then that lineage traces the lineage of David all the way from David, or all the way from Abraham, through David, and then to Jesus, showing that Jesus qualifies to be the king. Okay? So, John is relieved, I think, at this point. Doesn't say that, but you've got to think, oh, good. The lion of the tribe of Judah. He conquered. All these power words. Lion. Judah, the biggest and strongest of all the tribes. The root of David, the king, the Davidic line, the, 
the king lineage, I mean, all this stuff, it's just pointing to strength all over the place. Yeah, the lion can break the seals. The lion can open the book. The lion can tell us how God is going to do what he will do. You've read this, like we read it this morning. You've read it before, maybe. I wish we had it, just for a moment, because I wish that, I wish that you and I could, could feel the shock, could feel the, the dissonance, could, could, could see the surprise on John's face when he, when he heard the next part, or when he saw the next part, because this is as striking as it gets. I mean, in our, in our text, you've, you've got these juxtapositions that are, that are meant to make a point. Chapter 4 and in chapter 5, at the back part of chapter 5 and chapter 4, you've got a lot of praising and a lot of singing and a lot of worship going on. And in the middle of that, you've got weeping. You see, that's a juxtaposition of praise and crying. And in the middle of that juxtaposition of worship and tears, you've got a lion. And when you think about this, think about this. John, John is told, don't weep, don't, don't cry anymore, John. The lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, he has conquered and he's going he's gonna to open this book. And John looks. And what does he see? Verse 6. I mean, I, this, this, is, this is so, so important. And this is it's, it's so beautiful. And it, and it shows us so much into the heart of God and how God does what he does. But, but, I mean, I just want you to see the striking contrast here. The line of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, he's conquered. He can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw what? Not a lion. Not a lion to be seen. Not a lion to be found. I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain. The picture doesn't quite do it justice, but it helps. You don't see images like that naturally, right? Not now. That lamb over against that lion is the epitome of weakness. He has no defense. No ability, no power, no hope. The lion can do what the lion wants to do. The lamb can do nothing. And yet, when God is giving his answer to the question that the saints are asking, what are you going to do? What are you going to do to fix this mess we're in? What are you going to do to protect your people? What are you going to do to save us, God? The lion can open the seal. The lion can open the book. And John sees not a lion, but a lamb. And, and the one thing that the image behind me does not do is it doesn't portray the lamb as if it had been slain. I mean, you take, you take the image of a lamb and all the weakness of that, and then you add on top of that the fact that the lamb has been killed, and somehow the lamb is standing. 
what, what, what we're supposed to get here is this is the picture. This is the image of weakness, of hopelessness from an earthly human perspective. There's nothing a lamb can do. And yet, it's got seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And of course, we know that this is the... This is a picture not of weakness, but of strength. But it's strength according to God's way of doing things. It's a different version of strength. It's a di different vision of strength. You've got this lamb standing as though it had been slain. And in that, of course, we read this, and John would have seen this. We read this as Christians, and we know that this lamb, the ESV, the translation I'm reading from, capitalizes L because it knows who it's talking about, right? The lamb standing. It's standing, and though it has been killed... And Jesus was killed on a Friday, and yet he was standing on Sunday. I mean, you've got this image of the Lamb. John, John the Baptist had earlier said in John 1, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And so we got this image. we got Isaiah 53 that says, He was led as a sheep to be slaughtered, right? So we've got these images. Passover. Jesus is called in 1 Corinthians 5 the Paschal Lamb. He is the, he's the Lamb that was slain to, to bring about redemption, to bring about rescue from slavery. And you get all these images. And of course, we know in Revelation 5 when He sees the Lamb that had been slain and yet it is standing, we know that this is a reference to Jesus specifically this is a reference to those, those, those pivotal, momentous days from that Friday to that Sunday. Those three days when Jesus the Lamb was slain, but on Sunday He arose and He's standing. And so John is looking for the lion and he sees the slain Lamb, the slain Lamb that is alive. And God's answer to the question that the saints are asking, what are you going to do? How are you going to give us a voice? How are you going to protect us? How are we going to survive this? God's answer is, the answer is in Jesus, in the weakness that is portrayed in a lamb. <clears throat> You'll notice there's more to this image though. It says that it has seven horns. Recently we studied a little bit. I think that was a Sunday night. A few weeks ago we studied Daniel 7. This is probably a reflection on Daniel 7. Uh, uh, it's not important that you remember that per se, but I want to say just a word about it. Daniel 7 is, is, a, is a dream it's about a dream with these, these four creatures, each of them increasingly mighty and fearsome and concludes with this ferocious beast of some sort. They don't even describe exactly, you know, it, it, it can't be described with human words. You've got this beast in Daniel's vision here, and it has these horns on its head. And these horns, in the context of, of apocalyptic literature, the horns represent political power. They represent earthly strength. They represent what you would see when you look at Rome and you think, man, you see the legions, the Roman legions, and you think that's power. That would be signified in, a, in apocalyptic literature, literature by horns. And so it's just interesting here, again, our image behind me falls short of this. We don't have the slain aspect and we don't have the horns and we don't have the eyes. But, but, but when John saw this, he sees this animal, this, this lamb, with seven horns. 
And, and many people, many scholars think that this image is meant to be a parody of the horns on that beast of Daniel 7 that represented Rome. See, Rome was powerful. Rome, according to any human metric, was an incredibly powerful empire, especially at the end of the first century when John saw this vision. <coughs> it's powerful. The legions, it had everything. But this little lamb has the seven horns. The seven horns representing strength and power. The seven eyes representing the omniscience of God, that God knows all, that He is all-powerful. Seven horns, He has seven eyes, He's all-knowing. And yet, <coughs> excuse me, and yet the power of God is seen visually in this little lamb. I want to think with you for a minute about what this means to us. This, this passage, uh, this quotation on the screen is from 2 Corinthians 12. And uh, When I was out of town a couple weeks ago, I know Merv um, preached, I think, on 2 Corinthians 12. And the first part of this where Paul is, Paul is uh, talking about this thorn in the flesh. You know, Lord, take it away. And he prayed multiple times and God, Jesus said no. He said no. His response to Paul as to the reason why God would not take away this thorn in the flesh, whatever it was, is that he said, it's not, essentially, it's not best for you that I take it away. My grace is sufficient for you. And he says, my power is made perfect in weakness. You think about the whole biblical story from beginning to end. <clears throat> It is one where God, God's power is seen in a different way. In a, in a culture and in a, and in a time where the oldest son would be the one, he would be the son of power, you know? Do you know how many times in the Old Testament God chose not the older but the younger? When he chose Isaac over Ishmael, he chose Jacob over Esau. I mean, it goes on and on and on where God overturns worldly conceptions of power in order to show that God's power is seen in weakness. And at the cross, there's nowhere where it is displayed more beautifully and more powerfully than when the Son of God, who has all power, submitted to the power of evil and was hanging there naked on a cross. You and I have been conditioned by 2,000 years of Christian history and most people in this room have been conditioned by hearing this all of our lives and it no longer strikes us as it should. But the image of Jesus hanging on a cross was the image of weakness, helplessness, we know, of course, he said, I could have called 12 legions of angels. We sing, you could have called 10,000 angels. We know that, of course. But nonetheless, even given that, Jesus was willing to become helpless, to be naked, 
hanging on the cross. I mean, that is the image of weakness being Rome, taking control. Rome is in power and Jesus submitting himself to the power of Rome. The shame, the helplessness, the just the hurt and the I mean, 1 Corinthians 1, Paul, Paul talks about this later on. You know, Paul, Paul talks about this is why people, some people had a hard time accepting Jesus. How can you say your God was crucified? Only the weak are crucified. Only the powerless are crucified. And yet, of course, we know from all over the place in our text today is that God wanted us to see that His power is perfected in weakness. Amen. And the night before Jesus died, you know, He... This is why Peter argued with him about washing feet. Jesus is starting to wash their feet, and Peter says, no, you can't do that, because it was a position of servanthood to wash somebody else's feet. And yet, and Peter said, no, you can't do that. We're not going to let you do that. And Jesus said, Peter, you don't understand right now. You'll understand later. But God's power is in humility, is in service. Sometimes it is so easy for you and me as Christians to get caught up in worldly conceptions of power. We've talked about this some. Let me mention just a word about it again. It is so tempting for us to get embroiled, I think, in, in power struggles in, in, in our world and, and to get... Well, well, two things, one of two things will happen, especially when it comes to to, to sometimes the way that we think about like political power, for example. <clears throat> and and we, can get, we can get really excited and we can get overjoyed almost when we think the right people get in positions of power because we think that's going to help the church or that's going to help Christianity or that's going to further God's agenda or whatever. And so we get really excited about that. And then we get devastated when the wrong people are there. Because that's going to hurt Christianity. That's going to hurt our influence. That's going to hurt, that's going to hurt good. And so we can get overjoyed or we can, get, we can become devastated when we get too wrapped up in thinking the future of Christianity hinges on who wins at elections. You see, God's power, I'd, 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 I'd encourage you strongly to go back and look at 2,000 years of Christian history and see when Christianity had the most influence that it had. When it was wrapped up in political power or when it had no power. Truth is, Christianity, God has done incredible things, especially from positions of weakness. It's not to say, of course, and you, I, I suppose you know that, it's not to say that we shouldn't act consistently with our values, and vote consistently with our values and all that, only that we recognize, we of all people recognize that God is on the throne, right? I know that's kind of cliche, that can, that can become cliche, we say it enough times and it loses its meaning, but for us to understand that this story is teaching us that where does the power come? Not from the lion, the power comes from the lamb. The power comes at the cross and how people's hearts are changed and how people's lives are changed is when they come face to face with a crucified, helpless Savior. 
where the greatest power you can imagine was his being willing to say, I will not call the angel. I will not call the angel. I will go to the cross. There is no greater power than for you to be able to act with power and to choose to act through weakness. That's what we see at the cross. And so I just urge us in the, in the church not to become dismayed over the loss of cultural or political power, but rather to be overjoyed with our constant awareness that nothing ever will be done to take Jesus who was exalted from the tomb to the right hand of God and who, who now reigns. Nothing can be done to take him off of that throne. See, that's the confidence that we have. The weakness of the Lamb becomes the strength of the King. And so the way that we go about our lives in, in, in Christianity and the way we seek to impact, to make a difference in the world, to, to, to influence other people for Christ is through service. It's through the foot washing. It's through the humility. It's through, the living out the, it's through embodying the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. That's where power is to be found. You see, when Jesus died, He showed us, He showed us the way He wants us to live. And it is through this constant living out, death, burial, and resurrection. That's why the very entrance into the kingdom is signified by that very act, embodied physically. Baptism is a physical act, right? Yeah, it has all sorts of symbolic meaning, but it's a physical act. It's interesting that God wants us to go through this physically. To die, this is something that happens on the inside. We die to self. We say, Lord, I'm dying to the world's way of doing things. I'm dying to the world's conceptions of power. I'm dying to all that. And, we, and, and your body, physically, taken down, buried, and raised up physically, just as Jesus' body was raised up from the grave, to, to show this is what God does. This is where the power of God is found. The, the, the almighty working of God is, is, is demonstrated at the cross, at the resurrection, symbolized in our own baptism, and then we come out of the baptistry and we live that baptism every day. We live that image. We live that dying, that resurrection. That weakness that becomes power. That reigning of Jesus that is epitomized in this act of submission and selflessness. And we live that in our relationships. It's not about power. It's not about gaining the upper hand. It's not about having to win. It's not about getting the arguments right. It's not about, it's not about you know, I, I need to have the right influence. I need to say the right words. I need to do it the right way. It's about following Jesus into death following Jesus into resurrection. It is about, it's about submitting to the plan of God in working His way in us, right? That's how we Christians live. And we don't get caught up. We ought not get caught up in this world which gets everything so mixed up and so confused. You know, it goes on. We didn't read this part after verse, after verse 8. But what happens when you recognize this is you sing a new song. Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you've made them a kingdom and priest to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. That is, that is our hope. This struggling group of Christians in Rome 
near the end of the first century had no power. They had, their, their voice was muted. They were outnumbered. They didn't have control of the institutions. They didn't have control of the government. They had control of nothing. But they followed Jesus. And God used them. God used these quote-unquote helpless Christians to turn the world upside down. And that's what he's still doing. When we understand that his power is made perfect in weakness. If you're not a Christian today, um, we want to invite you on his behalf to recognize you've got to give up power, whatever that means to you, and submit it to him. God is sovereign, God is king, God reigns, but he reigns in ways that kind of subvert the worldly way of doing things. But if you come to him and you say to him, I want to give you my life, I want to give you everything that I am, everything that I'll ever be, God will take you and he will save you by his grace. You're baptized into Christ. All your sins are washed away. You follow Jesus into the water. You follow him into death. You come out just as he did in resurrection. And he lived that every day. God works through that. He'll work through you. We invite you today on his behalf. Maybe you need to ask for prayers of this church. We'll pray for you today and do anything we can to help you spiritually. Let's stand and sing.